We've been looking at this story of Job and looking at it in particular to understand something about suffering. Now, suffering is something that is common to all of mankind. Death and suffering, we'll look at today, common to all of us. Even those of us who feel like we haven't experienced much suffering in life, if we're honest with ourselves, can realize that we have. We've lost friends that we love. In fact, oftentimes we pretend we don't have suffering by blocking certain people out of our lives. And then we calm our soul, calm our spirits, or try to anyway, with different things to remove the pain of those broken relationships, the hurt. We're looking at this story because it unpacks the wisdom of God, and that is a wisdom that takes more than pat answers and simple answers, proverbs, to understand why suffering exists, how there can be a good God who allows suffering to take place in His creation. We have the benefit of reading this story of seeing the opening scene in the throne room of God with angels approaching God Himself and somehow in that company of good angels there is Satan himself, the archangel of evil, the fallen angel who comes and presents himself to God. It's a startling scene where Satan himself is the one who seems aloof, wandering to and fro, he answers God when he says, where have you been? And God is the one who is purposeful and directive in suggesting to Satan, more than suggesting, directing Satan toward his servant Job, who is a righteous man who's done nothing wrong, at least nothing to deserve the type of suffering that's going to come on him. It's under God's command and even his constraint that Satan goes and acts to bring on this man, taking everything that Job has, his wealth, almost his entire family, his health. We've seen that Job is left wishing he were dead. It's a wish that grows in intensity as he dialogues with Three friends who come to him. Three friends who also were materially successful, prosperous in life. We started to look at this dialogue two weeks ago when Job ventures to voice his lament, his complaint, his wishing he were dead. And then last week his his friend Eliphaz the chief, it seems, of the friends begins to speak to Job in response. He breaks the silence that had lasted for days from the friends. He poses an important question to Job. Can mortal man, he says, verse seven, chapter 4, verse 17, he said, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can, can a person, 
man or woman, be pure before his maker? It's a good question we looked at last week. It's an important question. It's the right question to ask, but the wrong question to ask at that time to Job. It's the right question, wrong time. This dialogue that goes back and forth, this dialogue is strange to our ears. It lasts forever, it seems. Who talks like that? Ten-minute speeches. And then the other responds with another ten-minute speech. Only in debate. You're timed, and you have to make your whole case all at once. Does that work? In fact, it's even more foreign to our ears because we're used to dialogue and TV and movies and even in books to a large degree that is is pithy. It's so quick that no one can actually talk like that. The dialogue that's most entertaining to us is completely unrealistic and it's because dialogue that occurs in a story is not meant to be a model for us to follow but it's used to communicate a point. It's important to understand God's communicative intent in recording his words to us. When we come to Job, we have to understand that there is no reason to doubt that this is a story of real people in a real place in real time. We don't have to understand this that, that these words represent exactly what was said by exactly by each person in those places in time in fact if you look at the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke that tell parallel accounts of the same person interacting with the same disciples and many of the same events you find that the words oftentimes differ from one person's recounting to the others doesn't lessen the impact of the story. Who could write? One of the writers says, who could write all the things that Jesus said and did? All of the books in all of the world could not contain that. He says, these things were written down so that you might believe. The story of Job was written down so that we might believe. That the God who made everything and who even made a world in which suffering could exist is the same God who comes and rescues people out of the pit. The pit that feels like death itself. The pit that feels even worse than death. Feels like hell itself. Separation from everyone you love. Separation even from God himself. That's what hell is. If you have a hard time some of the time with the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once you think about this, what happens if God withdraws his grace from every situation and just lets every person do exactly what he wants to? That is what weeping and gnashing of teeth would look like. It's where God withdraws His presence in the grace that enters in and rescues people out of difficult situations. It breaks the cycle of violence we've talked about. 
breaks the retribution that one person feels for a wrong that was done and then that other person feels for the wrong that was done to him. Hell is the place where God withdraws his presence. We do not live in hell now because God is present here on the earth. Hell is a very real place. Speak today about blood, about how certain things enter in and corrupt the blood. A friend of mine's a doctor who's pricked by a needle. He got hepatitis C. One small tiny prick corrupted every thing about his system, his blood system. Sin does that to all of God's creation. One tiny prick enters in corruption that spreads. Spreads like kudzu. You ever been in the southeast? See this vine that was imported? It sounded like a great idea because it grows fast. It can cover a wall in a hurry. But then it got out in the wild and it can't be controlled because it grows so fast. That's what sin does in our lives when it's left unchecked. In other words, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. One small lie ends up requiring bigger lies and bigger lies and bigger lies to cover up the first one. And then it becomes out of our control and we need something outside of us to come and enter in and to bring us back to health. Worthless physicians are you all, Job says to his friends. You bring a good point. I don't claim I'm righteous before God, but I haven't done anything deserving of what's come on me. Worthless physicians of the soul. I have a note on my desk from Zechariah's quote. It's the passage, Zechariah 11.17 It says simply this, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Back when the prophet Samuel was born, or before he was born, his mother Hannah could not bear a child, could not conceive. She went to the temple of God and spoke to the priest Eli, Hannah was praying, weeping over her condition. Eli thought she was crazy or drunk. Eli says, why are you doing this? Eli thinks she's the one who's worthless. Turns out that Eli's own sons, and even Eli himself to a degree, were the ones who are worthless, abusing God's people taking advantage of various servants in the temple, calls him these men worthless men. My consulting days, I was an efficiency consultant for manufacturing companies. One of the things we looked at most intently was what are the things that are value-added activities and what are the things that just are wasting people's time? Oftentimes we think that if we're doing no harm, we're doing good, but that's not true. God calls each of us in His economy to be doing value-added activities. 
fact, if we sit by idle, we're also considered worthless men and women in God's economy. Worthless physicians offering the right question at the wrong time, perhaps. Worthless servants in God's household sitting idly while other people do the meaningful work. Even worse, those who have been called to shepherd the flock, leaving the flock. Eliphaz comes back around. He gives another speech after the other two of Job's friends have spoken. And then Job responds to this speech with the words here that we'll read today. It says, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? But what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if I were in my if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. God has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now behold my witnesses in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. 
Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will, will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation. All my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds on to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If, my, if I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pits, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the, into the dust? This is God's word to you and me. Job's continued to voice his wish that he was dead. He even takes it to new extents and says, I wish I had never been born. His friends, verse 12, make night into day, whereas Job recognizes that the light has become darkness and he is entered into the pit. The pit of Sheol. Sheol was the ancient understanding of the place of the dead where voices could no longer be heard, where the blood of an innocent person who was murdered could no longer cry out for vengeance, for justice. Job says, look, I wish I were dead, but if I enter into Sheol and call that pit a familiar place like Father, or mother, say to the worm that's eating me, Mom, it's a striking image, isn't it? James Taylor has a song about living in a hole where he's isolated, has no friends. He says, I'm in a hole since I lost my girl. Watch out for the root. Everything's darkness around me. Imagine living life in a hole where you're isolated not only from your friends, but from God himself. He says, God's worn me out. This is my best hope, that I would just enter into this place of dead and be gone. Job speaks a lot of wisdom. He says, this thing that has come on me, it isn't because of what I did. 
you keep accusing me, friends. But I know, chapter 16, verse 7, I know that this is from God. Surely it is God who has worn me out. It goes on, verse 12, he says, It was God who broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set, up his, set me up as his target and put archers around me. Stop there. He slashed open my kidneys and my guts poured out. Like a warrior over his enemy, he's run across me. But Job also is expressing his understanding and the limitation of our understanding of God. goes a little bit askew. He attributes to God his pain in an overly simplistic way. He recognizes that nothing can happen apart from God's sovereignty and yet he can't account for the work of Satan in the task. God hasn't revealed to him how complex this, this outworking is. Is Satan one of God's archers firing these arrows? That's how Satan is presented other, way, other places in the scripture where God reveals more about himself after the time of Job. Apostle Paul refers to the fiery darts of the evil one, Satan's lies. Perhaps he's one of those archers. We can compare Satan also to the great nation of Babylon that came against God's people and destroyed them because we hear how God used those people to accomplish his purposes and yet at the very same time he never once justifies the actions of that nation as doing right. He holds them guilty even as he uses them to accomplish his purposes of bringing a sanctifying, refining fire to his people who had gone so far from him that they had forgotten all of his goodness. You see, Satan, like each of us, is responsible for every one of his choices and actions, and yet at the same time never outside of God's sovereign control. problem here is that it's not this principle, this concept is not within the bounds of human understanding it in and of itself requires God's special revelation, a showing something about himself to us that we could not deduce on our own by logic or even scientific investigation or any other means God has to peel back the layers of heaven and give us this insight into the throne room and also how it looks on the ground in order for Job and his friends and us to wrestle through these questions like Blake asked a few weeks ago before we started Job from Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And he says, when he had almost given up hope, 
Then I entered into the sanctuary of God, and there, there I understood wisdom. There I saw eternity when I could only see a brief period of time. There I saw true justice when I seemed to only see the righteous suffering and the wicked getting away with it. There I saw how every drop of blood that has been shed wrongly by murder cries out to the one who hears those drops of blood to God himself. Think about this. We tend to think of blood being the, the, the evidence that damns a person far more than any other evidence. But we live in a time where DNA testing and blood typing is commonplace. This was a time where blood was seen everywhere. Where people couldn't even discern the difference between an animal's blood and a person's blood. Who do you think Abel's blood was crying out to from the ground? When Joseph's brothers went back and reported to their father Jacob that Joseph had died and they brought the blood of an animal and that was all Jacob needed to convince him that his son was dead. Who do you think the the blood is crying out to except God himself? Who knew DNA testing long before it was invented by us? Who wove together all of those intersecting strands in each of us and knows every drop of blood that's ever spilt. Blood that cries out is an important picture in the Bible just as it's an important picture today for any homicide detective. This blood still cries out today when wrong is done. It's God who does the forensic investigation. Blood played an important part of explaining God's economy to His people when He established a nation for Himself, a people for Himself from the descendants of Abraham and others who came into the fold, by the way. And he explains why there was blood required at the sacrifice to forgive sins. In Leviticus 17, he says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the only thing that can atone, pay the ransom price for the taking of a life is another life. That's how valuable life is in God's economy. Life is valued more than anything else and human life is valued even above the animal life. It says he made man in his own image on the sixth day. Male and female, he made them after his image. And he gave them responsibilities that none of the animals could.
could take on. And it goes on in verse 12 of chapter 17 of Leviticus. He explains why this is important to understand, but he gives them a very specific instruction. He says, Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Now last night, somebody gave us a very generous gift to eat steak at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. We ate medium rare meat. We ate the blood of the beef. And we're allowed to do that now because Jesus' blood has been shed to pay the ransom price for our sins fully. The blood of the animals was just a sign of the thing that it was signifying to come, and that was Jesus. And the Apostle Paul explains it, Jesus explains it himself, he says, Now that commandment is done away with. But you should also still understand that the life is in the blood, and blood blood is the difference between life and death. Nothing is living. No animal is living unless it has blood coursing through it. There are two images that are given for life in the Bible, two principal images. One is blood and one is the spirit. And when the blood empties from the body, and the body is no more living. The spirit lives on, the Bible tells us. In Job, the book of Job, the story of Job weaves these things together over and over. And I don't know if you noticed it, but the very opening words that Job said were, Shall windy words have an end? And in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the words wind and spirit were the same word. Blood and spirit side by side come together to make human life. The animals don't have a spirit. Human beings have a spirit. The wind and the blood come together to bring life. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of dry bones in a field. And then God came and put flesh on them and there was blood again in it. And he did what? He breathed a breath into them and they came to life. Spirit was breathed into them. Job is trusting in the true spirit, God's spirit, while his friends are speaking empty breath, empty wind, empty spirit. Job can't understand the full significance yet of the blood that was to be shed for him and yet He says in chapter 19 that Blake is going to look at next week, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end will stand on the earth. Now this is an interesting concept because Job is speaking of God himself, his Redeemer, and yet to stand on the earth seems to hint that he will be human. He will have blood coursing through his veins. And that's exactly what Jesus does to rescue his people. He takes on flesh and blood. God, who is spirit, takes on flesh and blood and is united in one person to bring a rescue to all of us who suffer. To all of us who more than suffer, all of us who die. That's why in Job we see the word dust come up over and over and over again more than any other book 
in the Old Testament or New Testament, Job seems fixated on the dust. What does he do? Right away he enters into sackcloth and sits in the dust. What does he speak of at the end of this passage when he says that he will die? He says, I will return to the dust. Shall we descend together into the dust? When the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, God brought a punishment to them in Genesis chapter 4. says, from dust I made you. And now, so that you will not live on forever in this corrupted state, to dust you will return. Let's paraphrase there. But to dust you will return. What are the two things that are true of every human that we will suffer and that we will die? We will suffer and that we will die. But there is hope. There is hope that comes in the dust. We have to look ahead to the end of Job. It's impossible to look at Job and not look ahead to understand what the meaning of Job is because in the end, God reveals wisdom. After this wrestling back and forth of trying to understand what is right and what is wrong, God finally reveals truth. Job himself is confronted with God in chapter 42. And he ventures an answer to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He confesses his sins. He says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, all of us are destined for the dust. But there are two types of dust. Either we can enter the dust that is death itself, where we experience separation from God and from everyone who God has saved in the pits of hell. Or we can enter into the ashes of repentance and come to God and say, your ways are more, are greater than mine. I venture to guess at who you are, but now I see you face to face. My flesh was shriveling up. It was in my face, but now I see God. And your face is far more beautiful and fulfilling to behold. Now I understand something greater than what I could discern on my own. What's the response that we should find from Job and his laments and his wrestling with this? It isn't that Job declares himself righteous. He said, Job repents to God. He enters into ashes that bring him eternal life. 
how difficult it is for us to enter into those ashes when things are going well. How difficult it was for his friends to come and sit in the ashes and enter into Job's suffering truly. Suffering is the central theme of life's questions. Every world religion, every world philosophy has to address it. For, Buddhas, for the Buddhists, it's a question of how can I escape suffering? For Job's friends, it's a question of what did you do to deserve suffering? But for Job and the Bible, it's a question of how do I enter into suffering with other people? How do I enter into my own suffering and not turn against God but trust in Him all the more? My cousin, I've told you about, just lost her two-month-old baby, her fourth child, her only daughter. And I've listened to her voice as she shared different things with her friends and family. And as she's entered into this place of suffering, it gives amazing insight into how we can enter into this. She said this, recently wrote it. She said, there's not a second, not even a millisecond that doesn't feel like the fires of hell have engulfed me. It doesn't mean that I have any less faith. It doesn't mean I can't find happiness in my children and family. It just is for now. I had just as much faith before I lost my child. God knew this. I was the happiest person in the world. God knew that too. It is still the hardest, most confusing, most painful journey there is. It is real and it is raw. I'm not strong. I don't want to inspire anyone or anything like that. I just want to wake up from this nightmare and my daughter to be alive. There is no good that can come from her death that will be better for me than having her here. That is my truth. She says, maybe saying this is therapeutic or maybe I just should say it to myself. I don't know. I don't know what will help me. I've never done this before. I don't want to do it now. How much, how much alike is she like Job? Well-intentioned friends saying God will turn this evil to good. Yeah, that's truth. Did it with Joseph. Paul says it in Romans, but it's not it's not the right question for that time. The Christian answer, the answer of Christ, is that Christ entered into our suffering with us. So that we can make more sense of it, yes, but so that we can understand that God is not out of control because God enters into the suffering himself. The Christian answer is that we can enter into suffering and endure the pain because we know that it is only temporary. Even if it lasts a lifetime, it is still only a moment in time compared to 10,000 years and forevermore. The Christian answer to suffering is the only one that makes some sense when we face suffering. It's the only one.
can't escape it. It's like the bear hunt. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. And you need friends to be able to go through it with you. Job's friends were worthless counselors. God's given us his spirit that is the good counselor. God's given us one another to be each other's counselors, to add value. That's how we live out the life of the Christian. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it seems that the fires of hell are burning around us, oftentimes in our suffering. For my cousin who's experiencing this kind of separation and pain, not only from her daughter, but even from her well-intentioned friends, and even from me and others who have offered insufficient answers, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for when we've done this with others. Forgive us for when we've tried to seek out these answers from other places and followed worthless counselors. Father, restore our hope when we're hanging on by just a thread. Give us hope and pull us up by your strength. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.